I wonder, um, have you ever had a difficult neighbor? You know, uh, one who just kind of looks for stuff, it seems like anyway, to get angry about. If a tree in somebody else's yard blocks their sight line, they don't like that. Uh, if they can hear music from another house, if somebody brings their garbage can in too late, uh, if they, you park a car on the road in front of the house for too long, if you decide to paint your home a beautiful shade of fuchsia, if you have little children who play in the backyard and they're screaming and yelling and having fun, well, this neighbor complains and they leave you messages and they report you to the homeowners association. They even call the police on you. And this happens so often you find yourself getting angry, uh, even thinking or considering just telling them off, you know, lighten up, stop it. But then you remember Jesus says, love your neighbor. Hmm. Not only that, he says, love your enemy. So now you have a problem. If you follow Jesus, what are you going to do? Do you delegate loving this neighbor to a spouse? Uh, I've tried that. doesn't work very well. Truth is, you know, often we actually even enjoy indulging our irritation at our angry, irrational neighbor. It's enjoyable to kind of remember examples of their craziness and share that, you know, with a friend. That irritability that that neighbor has, the, the nutty, crazy, irrational neighbor. Truth is, when I do that, I'm not really loving my neighbor. Far from it. I'm not even trying to love them. Truth is, when I think about it, my neighbor isn't even really my problem. My problem is me. <laughs> my problem is right in here. You see, I have a tendency to divide the world into two groups. People who really have problems and then normal people like me, you know, two groups of people. Now, in contrast to that, Jesus also, I think, divides the world into two groups, people who really have problems and they know it, and people who really have problems and they don't know it. <laughs> this week, we're talking about the problem of anger. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is going to actually redefine for us what anger is. And his words here are both amazing and perhaps initially even confusing. Just uh, I, my hope, though, is that as we look at this text, this passage in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we will actually become encouraged by what Jesus teaches us here. So in Acts chapter 5, verse 21, these are the words of Jesus. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way or he may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. These are the words of Jesus. Now, um, 
One of the things that uh, when we jump into the subject of anger, we have to reckon with is that anger is a universal human problem. It's just as much a problem today as it was in Jesus' day. Uh, a difference perhaps, however, is that in that ancient world, there were no police departments, there were no district attorneys, there were no systems for processing your um, your arguments that you might be having with an irritable neighbor. In fact, uh, the rich and the powerful in Jesus' day could get away with almost anything. If you were rich enough, if you were powerful enough, uh, it was easy to do away with your neighbor if you wanted to. And so what we find in the Old Testament, particularly in the, in the law of Moses, is we find laws put in place to actually protect the weak. And this was where, of course, Jesus starts. The Old Testament says, you know the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. Uh, if somebody was killed in, um, in, within the, the nation of Israel, uh, there, was, there were laws put in place that allowed a family to appoint a blood avenger. Uh, it sounds like a comic book character almost, but this blood avenger could chase down the murderer, the one who had murdered this member of your family, and they could execute justice. They could execute the person. The blood avenger would, was usually the fastest, toughest, strongest guy in the family, kind of like a Vin Diesel or a Dwayne Johnson type of character, you know? And in that day in the ancient world, Understand, that was a huge step forward in the practice of justice because it prevented one whole family or tribe from taking revenge on another whole family or tribe that they believe had wronged it. Now you appointed a blood avenger to take care of that one individual who had committed a murder. Now, over time, as you might expect, human nature being what it is, wrestling with this problem of murder, you know, you shall not murder, and the relationship of anger to that whole problem of murder, human beings started thinking that when it comes to anger, there's only two kinds of people. You have good people and you have bad people. You have murderers and then you have non-murderers. So as long as I have not actually iced someone, I'm a good person. As long as I uh, haven't put someone underground, I'm obeying the law. I'm in the clear on this commandment. But as Jesus begins to describe this thing of murder, and as he connects it to the problem of anger, we see that it's really not quite that simple. Uh, anger goes deeper than that. Uh, it's significant, I think, that Jesus starts his discussion of human problems right here with this, this issue of anger. Later, he's going to talk about human sexuality. He's going to talk about broken relationships. What do we do with broken relationships? He's going to talk about the problem, the huge human problem of dishonesty. But he starts with anger. That's where he starts. And anger is probably the number one offender of spiritual life. If you look in the Bible, so many of the stories told about figures in the Bible are surrounded by the problem of anger. Anger is very pervasive. Think about Cain and killing his brother Abel. Anger. Jacob with his relationship to Esau. Anger. Joseph and his brothers. Anger. David responding to the anger of his son Absalom who tries to take the kingdom away. If you look at real life, anger is a huge problem. One of the things I like about the Bible is that when you read about it, it paints a very honest picture of even the heroes of our faith. And often we find our heroes processing the problem of anger. Uh, according to the National Center on Domestic Violence, 20 people a minute physically 
uh, abuse an intimate partner. 20 people a minute are actually physically abused by an intimate partner. Think of that statistic. That's staggering. Do the math. Think of all the unpleasant workplaces. Think of all the miserable, miserable marriages. Think of all the pathetic parenting that happens that results from this problem of anger. The vast majority of human wrongdoing involves anger. Now, it also involves something else that comes from anger, which is contempt, and we're going to talk more about that in a minute. But if you could eliminate anger problems, you might be eliminating the single greatest cause of human misery. And so we have to ask the question, why is anger such a huge problem? And the answer, I think, at least headed in the right direction on this, has to do with something we've talked quite a bit about recently, and that's this thing of kingdoms. You know, we've been looking at Jesus' good news for some time now, and his good news is that up there, you know, the kingdom of God is coming down here, and Jesus is the king who brings the kingdom of God here to earth. And we've talked about how everybody else has a kingdom. You have a kingdom. I have a kingdom. Our children have kingdoms. Those at work have kingdoms. Schools, there's kingdoms galore there at school. Everybody has a kingdom. And your kingdom is where your will is in charge. That's your kingdom, right? Your will, of course, is your ability to choose and to create and to initiate and to control what happens. And anger is most often a response to a thwarted will. Are you with me? It's what we feel when our wills get blocked. I want this to happen, but it's not happening. Anger is your will saying, hey, something isn't going the way I want it to go. Something is happening that I don't like. Now, when this happens, this almost always immediately moves us because of our brokenness, because of our fallenness, because of our sinfulness. It moves us to thinking, you know what? I will harm whatever it is that it obstructs my will. Whatever is in my way, I will move it. Whatever uh, is in my way, I will destroy it. I will get it out of my way because I want my will to be done. This is my kingdom. So I'm in a hurry to go into an important meeting. And I'm running late. Oh, notice my shoe's untied. And I've been down to tie the shoelace, but I'm a little in a hurry. And so I yank it hard. The shoelace breaks. My first thought is, oh, that stupid shoelace, the stupid shoelace, how stupid it can be. And, you know, it's kind of funny, though, because a, a, a shoelace, of course, can't be stupid. It's an inanimate object. Uh, it's unintelligent. But when I'm angry, you know, I have a desire to harm the stupid shoelace, right? And uh, it has thwarted my will. It has now affected the schedule in my kingdom. And it should be destroyed, this stupid shoelace. But here's the problem. Is the world set up to always conform to my will? Is it? <laughs> not at all. Of course not. And so I'm, I'm going to get angry a lot you know, if the root of anger is the thwarting of my will. You know, tennis players, they will, they'll hit a bad shot and they'll get angry, not at themselves, of course. They'll take it out on what? The racket. They'll slam it to the ground. Stupid racket hit the ball where I didn't want it to go. Baseball players will strike out and they will pound the ground with their bats. You know, just frustrated and angry that they struck out. Um, golfers will hit a bad shot and occasionally... Um, <laughs> 
throw their club or pound it into the ground, a stupid club. You know, this is a true story, not making this one up. There was a man in Washington whose car got stuck in the snow, you know, a morning like this morning. The man became furious. He took a tire iron out of his trunk and broke out every window in his car. And then he got a pistol and he shot all four tires, shot them, and then he reloaded and he emptied the clip into the car, the engine, and, and so on. The police who came, you know, to look into what was going on, obviously that would get reported, uh, wrote him up for an act of autocide. <laughs> Not making that up. That's what they, you know. Uh, now, uh, of course, the number one cause of anger in people, it's not shoelaces. It's not tennis rackets or baseball bats or golf clubs or cars. What is the number one cause of anger in people? It's people, isn't it? It's people. And so pretty soon I'm not thinking, oh, this stupid shoelace, this dumb racket, this stupid bat, this dumb car, this stupid club. I'm thinking this stupid person. And the problem that Jesus is concerned about is not just that my emotions get aroused when my will, the will of my kingdom gets thwarted. The problem is not even that, you know, my will has been thwarted. The problem Jesus is concerned about is that now you see, I actually want to harm this stupid person. I will to harm them. And I don't necessarily mean physically. You see, I want to believe that they're stupid. They're an idiot. They're a moron. They are bad. They are deserving of bad things. They need to be pushed out of the way of my will being done. And that right there is kind of illustrative of the deeper dimension, the deeper problem of anger. Anger is not just the emotion that I feel when my will gets thwarted. Anger in us moves really quickly to wanting to harm someone, whoever it is that's opposing my will, harm their reputation. Maybe I'll just gossip about them, diminish their value. Maybe I'll just ignore them, have nothing to do with them, impugn their motives, judge them, dismiss them, find some way, some quiet way to get revenge on them. Maybe even harm them physically if I can, if I need to. Now to Jesus, remember, and we've talked already about this, but we need to kind of revisit this idea. Remember to Jesus, loving someone is always wanting what's good for them. More specifically, it's always wanting God's will to be done in their lives. That's what loving someone is all about. So it's never okay to stop willing the good for a person. Never, not ever is that okay. And that's why Jesus becomes so concerned about this thing of anger because of where anger wants to take us, you see. And this is fundamentally important. Matthew 5, 21, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, do not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And then Jesus uses a word in the next phrase that indicates it's a word that means intense anger. It's the Greek word or gizomenos. And we get the word orgy actually from this. So what Jesus is setting up is this idea. It's a word that connotes an orgy of anger. This is what he said. Jesus deliberately describes the consequence of this kind of anger as being exactly the same as that of murder. He says this, anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But he says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry, orgies ominous, 
Anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. (laughs) And when we hear that or we read that, if you're like me, the first thought that goes through my head is, really? Are you serious, Jesus? I mean, this seems so unbelievable, like such an impossibly high bar. And of course, it is. So people have tried all kinds of ways to wiggle out of actually having to obey what Jesus says here. For example, some people say in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was offering the kingdom of heaven to the nation of Israel. The Sermon on the Mount was therefore, it was an ethic being given given for Israel if they would live in the, the kingdom of heaven. But Israel refused to make Jesus their king. They crucified him instead. And so the Sermon on the Mount does not really apply to us. We don't have to worry about the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount for us today. And I would say that's a bad reading and a bad misunderstanding of how the Old Testament relates to the New Testament. And that's a sermon for another time. But that's a bad interpretation. Some people have said, well, you know, Jesus is, of course, only referring here to unjustified anger. You get the idea. He's saying only unjustified anger is forbidden. Surely some of my anger is justified. And this idea was so prevalent, uh, even, um, well, that when translations of the Bible were made, translations of the New Testament were made, and there, there were a certain, you know, of course, when somebody made a, a, a copy of the Bible, they had to handwrite it, right? So you had scribes making copies of one manuscript and creating a second manuscript. And so some translations have a, a footnote around this whole thing uh, with some of these old manuscripts to say anybody who is angry without cause at their brother. Some of your Bibles might actually have that footnote in it. But understand, here's probably really what happened. In the ancient world, of course, because of this process of making copies of Scripture, okay, I've got one, I'm going to hand copy another one. A scribe comes along and says, you know, this doesn't make any sense to me. Surely Jesus couldn't have meant angry for any reason. He must have meant if you're angry without cause. So they actually added those words into the text. Uh, They were simply saying, you know, unjustified anger is bad, but not, of course, justified anger. That would have to be okay, but that becomes part of the text. Did that make any sense? Okay, made some sense. But here's the problem. That is actually not okay to try to explain what we think Jesus might be saying. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And I got to tell you, friends, when people reinterpret Jesus so that they don't have to obey what he says in the text like this about not getting angry, that just really pisses me off. (laughs) Just seeing if you're awake. One of the dangers of anger is that we actually enjoy it. Think about this with me. We actually enjoy anger. And I like it because it makes me feel superior over whoever it is I'm angry at. Have you ever noticed that, I'm sure this is true, you have never met a humble, angry person. Because somebody who's angry is lording it over somebody that they're angry at. Jesus' teaching on this is is really simple. You know, it's, it's not particularly complex. It's not hyperbole here. Jesus is arguing that the heavenly father never stops willing what is good for somebody, for anybody. Never, not ever. God is perfectly capable of simultaneously discerning and judging someone's actions as evil. What this person is doing is evil. 
and knowing precisely how much of the responsibility for their actions is in their genetics, their, their nature, if you will, and how much of their action is there because of their environment, their nurture, their upbringing, their training, if you will, and how much of this, this evil action is also just a part of their own personal choice. And at the same time, as God discerns all of those things, he still wholeheartedly is willing what is good for that person. That's how good our good God is. God can do that, does that all the time, all day long for all people everywhere. But for me, speak for myself here, as soon as I start to indulge anger, I tend to stop willing the good for the person that I'm angry at. As soon as I cease to will somebody's good, that's not a feeling, that's an act of my will. So if I start to will something for this person or that person other than God's will, that is an evil thing, that is a bad thing. I'm choosing the kingdom of self, my kingdom, my will over God's kingdom, you see. That's what's going on. This is what makes anger so dangerous. And Jesus knows this because you see, anger justifies not willing the good of another person. We use anger to do this all the time. And often it doesn't stop there, it moves to another level. Anger often moves us towards contempt for the person we're angry at. And contempt is something that can't be contained. Contempt is something that if you feel contempt for another person, it will leak out of you. Uh, it leaks out in your words. It leaks out of you in your deeds. And because Jesus doesn't want this to happen, he gives us a couple of examples here um, of how this happens in us when we go from anger to contempt. You know, and then what do we start to do as we interact with these people or that person that we're angry at? This is what Jesus says. He says, again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a Jewish court. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. You see, what Jesus is describing here is anger progressing to contempt. Uh, Raka, is a, it was an insult in that day. It's kind of a guttural sound when you would say that to somebody. A kind of the sound that you would make if you're about to spit on someone. It's spitting, of course, like this sound is a, a gesture of contempt. And anger very often moves us to hold the person that we're angry at uh, in contempt. We say or we feel in anger awful things. You idiot. You moron. You worthless piece of... And you finish the blank. You see, often contempt involves language of filth. Contempt is like that. Now, some people will read what Jesus says here in this text and they will hear and they will think to themselves, yeah, I don't explode. I don't yell, I don't curse. So I don't guess I have an anger problem. Well, let me say, not likely, not likely. You know, we have a, in our culture, and I think all cultures are probably like this, we have a seemingly infinite number of ways to convey anger. For example, how we look at someone can convey anger. Or ironically, how we don't look at them can convey anger. Uh, how we speak to someone can convey anger. How we don't speak to someone 
can convey anger. How we touch them, how we don't touch them. You know, in our culture, we use sarcasm. We use sabotage. We use just, you know, forgetting them, putting them out of mind. Um, We use things like passive aggression or withdrawal or avoiding or placating somebody out of fear or appeasing someone wrongly to express anger. We use all of these kinds of ways, sometimes subtly, sometimes not so subtly to express anger. Point being this, that all these things we can do from a place of anger and they, they can be every bit as unloving and sinful as exploding in wrath is. That's a way to express anger. Now, here's the point. Jesus is not giving us in this text that we read a new set of rules to follow around the problem of anger. Sometimes people mistakenly read Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount as giving a new list of yet harder rules to keep. And so they think, well, okay, okay, these are rules, right? So I'm not allowed to murder anyone. Check, haven't done that yet. I can't call them racha. Okay, I don't even know what that means. Not even gonna say that. I can't call them a fool. Okay, I'll take that out of my vocabulary. But fortunately, there are a lot of other bad words I can use to describe this, you know, moron. Yeah, that's not what Jesus is doing here. He isn't giving us a new set of rules. What he's really doing in this text is he is illustrating what it looks like to be a person living in his kingdom and to have a heart that's being changed. It's being pervaded by love, his love, uh, such that our heart actually wills God's will, the good for other people. That's what Jesus is doing in this passage. You know, last week he talked about having a surpassing righteousness to that of the the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. That's what he's going to picture for us. What does it look like to process the problem of anger and have a surpassing righteousness? A righteousness that comes from the inside. It comes from a heart that's being changed, being transformed. You see, anger is not something that we can conquer simply by trying not to be angry. Go try that. I'm just gonna try harder not to be angry. If my heart, you see, is not being transformed, if I'm not being changed from the inside out, if I'm not living in the kingdom of God, using his word, using prayer, using the things that can change my heart, anger and the will to harm people, to get even with people, to be self-seeking, to sin will triumph and sneak out of me in a thousand unseen ways. I really can't just say I'm going to stop it and stop it. One person says, and I think they're right, anger eats behavior modification for breakfast. Anger will not be overcome by external compliance to rules is the point. And so we turn now to Jesus' teachings on, you know, how living in the kingdom can actually transform an angry heart. This is something we all need. You know, what does that look like exactly, Jesus? Well, Jesus gives us two, two positive illustrations of what a kingdom person does. This is a person who's living with surpassing righteousness, right? What a kingdom person does when dealing with people and the problem of anger. And again, these aren't laws. These aren't new rules. These are illustrations. So let's take a look here. Two things. The first thing, Jesus says that we should make reconciling a broken relationship a higher priority than doing good religious things. That's the first thing he says. Um, 
If you look at the, the text, he says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, in other words, you're doing something good, you're actually engaging in worship of God. But as you're about to do that, and there, he says, and there remember that your brother has something against you and maybe your brother is right. Maybe your brother is wrong. Maybe it's a mixture. They're right, you're partly right. It doesn't matter. I want you to notice that. It doesn't matter. Jesus says, do reconciliation first. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Why? Why do that, Jesus? Well, because that's what love would do every time. And we're always called to love, right? You know, I, I went to my pharmacy recently and there were some people in line there, uh, four or so people in line. And uh, I'm waiting and the, the guy at the counter who's talking with the clerk behind the pharmacy counter there, uh, they're talking and talking and talking and talking. And, you know, I'm wondering what the heck? I mean, like, on and on, just keep talking and talking. One of the people in the line in front of me, uh, she had her two little children with her. And uh, have you ever noticed how little children love to wait in line? Have you noticed that? <laughs> you know, I think they're probably two years, four years old, something like that. And they, oh, they do what any little kid's gonna do. They start wiggling, they start whining, they start making noise, they start complaining. And, and all the while, this guy at the counter, did I mention, he's just talking and talking and talking and so on. And uh, there is another person behind the counter. That's the pharmacist who doesn't seem to be wanting to help, you know, get this line taken care of. Uh, and I noticed myself in this moment getting irritated. I mean, I was in a hurry. Uh, I had stuff to do. This was taking forever. Are you getting the drift? And I began to think, you know, the people in this line are so self-centered. I mean, what's wrong with this woman bringing children who don't want to wait in line? And uh, then there's this guy at the counter whose prescription, I guess, needs a ton of conversation. What is that about? And I realized while I was standing there that I was beginning to view every person in front of me in that line as my enemy. They were obstacles to achieving what I wanted to achieve in my kingdom. They were obstacles to my getting through this stupid line. And here I am, I'm a minister of Jesus. I've got things to do and places to be, giant spiritual kingdom things to accomplish, you know? <laughs> and in that moment in my mind and heart, if I'm being honest, this is what's going on inside of me. You fool, you fool, 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 fool. That's what's going on in here. It wasn't coming out of my mouth, but I'm sure it was coming out of my eyes and my face and probably my body language. And here's the thing, you see, I'm doing this whether I really need to be in a hurry or not, because truth be told, I, I was on my way home. I had nothing to be in a hurry about. It's so interesting the invitation from Jesus to us is not, okay, grit your teeth, avoid murdering people and try really hard not to say raka or fool and everything else is fair game. That's not what he's saying to us. His invitation is, why don't you come follow me? And as you do, why don't you learn to die to your own ego? Die to self, die to your kingdom of self. And live in the reality of my kingdom. 
And I think he was saying to me, and Dwayne, you need to realize you cannot by force of your will, will align to move any faster. Dwayne, you are not in charge of pharmacies, never put you in charge of pharmacies. You are not in charge of lines. You live in my kingdom. So relax and let go of everything that is not yours to control, which if you think about it is almost everything. And if you do that, Jesus would say to me, to you, I can help you will the good for all those people in this line. And I have to be honest, you know, because I'm writing this sermon, this is stuff that was going through my head. And I thought that that's, I look at me, I, I need to, I need to change this whole thought process. And so I did. And I just started talking pleasantly to the people, you know, in line there in front of me. You know, what a, what a great hat. One of the kids had a hat that was kind of cool. And boy, oh, that's a cool hat. Where'd you get that? And so on. And I asked the lady what her kids' names were and, you know, how old are they? And how long do you let them out of their cages? And, you know, just making <laughs> pleasant conversation. And here's the thing. I don't think God's kingdom suffered one bit from my being delayed for a few minutes in that line. Not one bit. You see, in God's kingdom, here's the thing. I, am, I, I cease to be attached to my will having to be done if I'm living in God's kingdom. If I'm living in God's kingdom, I cease to be attached to having to get my way. And I'm actually able to love people who, you know, may be slowing down the line. I think actually, I mean, uh, nobody actually professed faith there in the line. I don't know why, but, you know, but, but uh, just through the pleasant conversation, I actually think I was able to help the mom a tiny little bit because I was engaging with her kids and I diverted their attention. And it helped those kids endure, you know, having to go through uh, probably the third or the fourth place they had been with their mom, you know, having to wait in a line. You see, if I will live in the kingdom of God, then I live in the goodness and the surpassing righteousness of his kingdom. And I actually find that I am able to want, to desire, to will the best for others. God's will be done in their lives, you see. And I am able to do this even where relationships are broken. Uh, I am able to pursue a change of attitude in myself and therefore pursue this thing of reconciliation. One of the things that people do who are living in God's kingdom is they seek reconciliation before doing something religious. That's what Jesus is pointing out to us here. And sometimes truth be told, I mean, you gotta be honest with this. If we, you know, sometimes reconciling a relationship is a really complex, really messy affair. Not something you can fix in a single conversation. It would take time. Maybe it'll take years. Maybe it'll take multiple conversations. Maybe it takes getting somebody from outside the relationship into the relationship to listen, to talk, to give counsel and so. And then there's that other aspect. Even if you want reconciliation, well, for real reconciliation to happen, the other person has to want that too, right? Something is in their hands when it comes to restoring a relationship. And if they're not willing to do that, well, the relationship's not likely to actually get restored or reconciled. But if you, if you as a Jesus follower are, are not doing this, not pursuing reconciliation, not wanting restoration, if you're saying, you know what, this is, this is not my problem. This is not my fault. This breakdown is not my responsibility. He should make the first move. She will never change. So what's the point? So I'm okay on this one. I don't have to seek 
reconciliation. My conscience is clear. I'm not living with angry feelings. So there, enough said, it's over, it's done. But I would say, friends, that Jesus did not say, if your brother or your sister has a problem with you, manage your emotions so you don't feel angry. That's not what he said. He, he, he didn't say that contempt avoidance is love. That's not love. You see, love wills the good of the other person. And again, this, this can be complex sometimes, right? Depending on just how dysfunctional a relationship may be. If the other person is utterly hard-hearted, well, there's not going to be a lot you can do. There isn't. Maybe all you can do is offer God genuine willingness, right? Willingness to pray, willingness to listen to him, willingness to think about what might accomplish or move things in a direction of reconciliation. But here's the thing, an awful lot of people let themselves off the hook when it comes to reconciliation and restoration because they just don't want to do it. It's hard work. It's not fun. But I think Jesus is teaching us that love seeks reconciliation. Love wills restoration. And I would just say, if you're not doing that, if you're not willing, if you're not open to it, if you're not seeking it in relationships, then do not kid yourself. You're not following Jesus. Not in that matter. And that's the first thing that Jesus illustrates for us. So here's a second thing uh, that living in Jesus' kingdom looks like as it relates to this thing of, of anger. Jesus says, initiate genuine kindness toward your enemy. Initiate genuine kindness toward your enemy. He talks about a courtroom. He raises that illustration. Suppose somebody is taking you to court, he says. You're in a legal or financial battle. Boy, things have gotten bad if that's where you're at, right? And believe me, I know what it's like to get deliberately shafted by somebody for a sizable sum of money. Makes you mad. Makes you really mad. It's not right. It's not just. What do you do? Well, Jesus says this, he says, settle matters quickly. And his word choice here is kind of interesting because the word he uses here actually has the connotation of making friends quickly or the idea of be kindly disposed toward this person quickly. That's the backdrop sense of the words that he chooses here. So he's saying you, you need to genuinely try to understand what it looks like to help this person. You need to take initiative, he says. And of course, that may not mean doing what this person would want you to do. Certainly not always is it going to mean that. But for sure, it does mean seeking to do what is best for them in God's eyes. And that may even be the legal deal. Maybe, maybe you wind up in a court because that's the best thing for them as you pray about it, as you think about it in God's eyes. And I know some of you have been through that kind of thing. Maybe you have a rival at work who is just always mistreating you. Maybe you have an enemy at school that just is uh, bullying or always uh, attacking you. Maybe you have a difficult neighbor. Maybe you have a very troubled ex-spouse. Well, maybe all you can do at first to move towards reconciliation is just pray. Humbly pray. God, this thing is stuck. This thing is a mess. I have no idea what to do, but I, I would pursue reconciliation if there was some way for that to happen. So I'm praying, Lord. And as you pray, the, the thing you ought to be thinking about is, is there some way for you to show them an act of kindness? 
Because that's part of what's being insinuated when Jesus says settle matters quickly. It's figure out what's going on in their head and and do what you can as an act of kindness. How can you initiate that? How can you settle matters quickly? Not out of fear, not out of obligation, but literally out of love. And maybe that's not possible, but ask God to show you, is there a way to initiate kindness? The main point with these examples that Jesus gives us is just this, seek reconciliation, you be the one to take initiative and doing an act of kindness for an enemy just might open up a door to enable you to settle matters quickly. It's not, hey, do these behaviors, here's the new rules, you must follow them. It's not what he's doing. Jesus is actually inviting us into his kingdom, inviting us to look at his life and to ponder what kind of thought life, what kind of feelings and moods, what habits of mind, body, and speech would you find in a person who routinely pursues reconciliation above religious observation? And when you ponder over these kinds of things for your life, or I ponder over them for mine, we begin to get a vision for righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. You know, as I ran some of these things through my mind, standing in line, frustrated, my kingdom, my will is not being done. What can it look like for God's will, God's kingdom to come into that somewhat disruptive little situation? Well, I can be kind, I can be gracious. I can be not self-serving, but enter into serving others. Now, there's one more thing I want to mention before I let you go. And this isn't uh, specifically in the text, but it's implied. It's implied this way. All of these comments that Jesus is making about what you do with anger, how you process brokenness and difficulty with people, he's making all of these comments, of course, in light of what he knows he's going to do at some point, which is what? I'll give you a hint. He's going to go to the cross. So the last thought is just this. When it comes to dealing with anger, one of your most powerful weapons is to reflect on the cross. Because you see, the cross reminds us there really is a great battle between good and evil, between love and anger, between willing the good for someone and willing their harm. And here's the thing. The cross reminds us that Jesus willed God's good will for us, even when it meant his harm. That's the extent he went to in order to bring about God's will for people. He went to the extent of dying for you and for me. You see, anger tells me, hey, it's okay to will bad stuff for this contemptible moron idiot here. That's what anger will incline me to say. And that's why almost all evil involves anger. And that's why Jesus, I think, starts with the problem of anger because it is such a big problem for us. See, the battleground between good and evil and love and anger, the battleground is right here. It's in my soul. It's a problem I have. It has to do with my will, my kingdom, and it has to do with my dying to myself if I'm gonna follow Jesus. So this week, every time your will gets thwarted, and it's going to a lot, guarantee you that, take it to the bank. I would suggest using that will of yours getting thwarted as an opportunity. Step back, reflect on the cross, die. Think about dying to your will. 
hand that over to God. And I would just say too, you have no chance of being able to do that unless you are reflecting on the cross. There's no good reason to die to your will unless you think about who he died for. He died for you. There's no reason to say, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven versus, hey, my kingdom come, my will be done, unless you reflect on the cross. And when you do reflect on the cross and you feel invited into Jesus' kingdom, there's this sense in which out of the unhurried, unworried abundance of God's kingdom, I can know the freedom of surrendering my will. Your kingdom come, Lord, your will be done. And learn the joy of loving a person who doesn't necessarily deserve it, just like I don't deserve his love. Technically, nobody deserves your love. Not technically. Technically, you don't deserve their love. Technically, none of us, not one of us deserves his love. Technically. But he loves us. He died for us. He came back from the dead for us. You see, reflecting on the cross reminds us, I'll borrow some language from last week's sermon, and if you weren't here, well, tough, I'm really pissed at you. Uh, Reflecting on the cross reminds us to do the dance gracefully, the dance of life, the dance of faith we talked about last week. So important that we learn to do that dance gracefully. Reminds me not to let anger rule over me, get a grip on me. And here's the deal. I think that if the world could see a community of people who are surrendering their anger, we all have it. We all have to process it. Surrendering that anger to the kingdom of Jesus and then loving people and pursuing people and seeking reconciliation and restoration in our relationships. Oh my God. Oh, how God could be given glory if we get good at doing that. Amen. Amen. Pray with me. Father God, uh, we thank you for Jesus' teaching. We admit that anger is a huge problem. Some of us, God, express it way out there and loudly and, and powerfully, and others, we express it kind of behind the scenes, quietly, but nevertheless, just as much anger. And Lord, without you delivering us from this great human problem of anger, we will not overcome it. But thank you for the teaching of Jesus, Lord, that there are certain things we can do in pursuing restoration and reconciliation and taking initiative. And there are things and ways that we can go about uh, trying to be kind towards the one with whom we're contending. And And we can pray and we can trust and we can lean into relationships in a manner that that shows that we care even when someone doesn't deserve that because God, that is what you do for us. Remake us, Father. Change our hearts to be more like the heart of Jesus for we ask it in his name, amen.